Attention Greendale students and welcome to Streets Behind, a podcast about the TV show community. Hosted by two friends who met on campus but couldn't hang out during the pandemic. So we started this podcast to stay connected. And together we come up with so many insights about the show and the characters that we never would have thought of on our own. We know it's not perfect, but if it was, it wouldn't be Greendale. So join us. You're already already accepted. accepted. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Recording. All right, ready? Yes. Let's do it. What's up, everybody? This is Matthew Kroll. And I'm Sandy Caldrone. And you're listening to, wait, what's our name of our pod again? Streets Behind. We're keeping it. You're listening to Streets Behind. <laughs> uh, if only you all knew how much we had discussed what a smooth intro we were going to have today. <laughs> and on this week's episode of Streets Behind, we're discussing season one, episode eight of our beloved TV show sitcom Community, the title of which this uh, episode of Community is Home Economics. Sandy, just first things first, broad strokes. What'd you think about the episode? What was your general response to it? So something I noticed in this episode is, you know, we always talk about how much has happened in each of these episodes. And in this one, like they didn't even have time for the theme song. Um, they just yeah. did like a two second, like shot of the, the uh, fortune telling paper guy thing. Um, and that was it. So that was kind of like my overall feeling for this episode is like more so than even some of the previous ones, like they crammed this full of content. Yeah, that's a great point. I hadn't even realized it, but So I just watched it this morning prepping for this. But now that you say that, like suddenly I've had this like retroactive realization of like, oh, yeah, it was just like a little like organ riff or piano riff or something. And then it was just, yeah, it was like, like, yeah. And then it was like into the show. I hadn't even thought about that. That's a great catch. I would just say that I generally agree that there was a lot going on in this episode. And the one thing that I would add is that it's a lot in the way of character development and Mm -hmm. interpersonal dynamics, which we often talk about, like the different pairings and the Mm -hmm. ways that like different sort of subunits or sub pairs of the broader study group kind of, yeah, start to build storylines or friendships or their relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought it was interesting in that so much happened, but specifically in the way of character development wasn't, I mean, there's plot points, but it wasn't really a plot episode. I thought it was a character episode. Does that sound? Yeah, I think so for sure. It was also funny. There was a couple, uh, yeah, just like, well, we'll get to it. There's a couple things that really cracked me up. A couple really good lines. <laughs> um, I think the writing definitely had a rhythm in places and it was kind of, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, which also to your point, there was so much they had to get in that the writing had to be kind of very succinct and mm-hmm. snappy. And I probably just nauseated someone with actually snapping near the <laughs> microphone. As I said that, I apologize. It's better than doing the facial expressions that they can't see. Um, so <laughs> So to frame this episode in terms of our conversation and just the the episode generally, three major plot points, and I think maybe we'll discuss them in this order if that's all right. Number one is, and I think where the title of the episode comes from, is that Jeff is living out of his car because Mm -hmm. of some sort of financial uh, transgression or failure to pay some sort of something that he's being booted from his condo. And so he's living out of his car temporarily. So that's kind of one plot point. The second plot point is 
the fallout of the breakup of Vaughn and Britta. So <laughs> Vaughn's back in this episode. It's great to see him. And the way Pierce gets brought into Vaughn's band mm-hmm. in an attempt to talk to Vaughn for Britta. And then the yes. way that whole thing evolves, at least in this episode, if not beyond, and we'll talk about that. And then the final one is something that I think we've seen the seeds of. It's that Annie clearly had a massive crush on Troy in high school mm-hmm. and in fact continues to have this this crush on Troy. And then how she, in thinking Troy was maybe going to ask her on a date, uh, gets sort of roped in to or volunteers really to spend time with Troy helping him set up a date with another woman. Mm-hmm. So those are sort of the three, the three big, big plot points. Anything you want to add on that before we, before we dive, before we dive in? No, let's uh, talk about Jeff Winger and all of his problems. <laughs> nice. I'll let you start it off. So Winger living out of his car, a late model <laughs> Lexus. At the time this was recorded. <laughs> yeah, so no, every time you say he's living out of his car, I hear Shirley in my head going, living out of your car, you're living out of your car, when she snaps and uh, accuses him of, of living out of his car. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, you had the cadence exactly. <laughs> you knew what I was talking about. No, it's exactly, it's the way the second time she lays on car. <laughs> She's like pointing at him. <laughs> That's funny too, though, the way she says, uh, I think to Britta, she's like, oh, I know someone who's living out of their car, like when I see it or something like that. But um, anyway, sorry. So, yeah. so go go ahead there. Yeah, Shirley is, doesn't have a lot of lines in this episode, but she is really funny. Um, but yeah, she's, she has a comment where she, um, they, so Shirley and Britta walking uh, through campus after class kind of see through the shrubbery that uh, Jeff has pulled his car up close enough to the school to like get access to like a water spigot on one of the outer walls. And he's both like, I think he's brushing his teeth <laughs> and kind of showering with his shirt off, but his yeah. pants on and also like lifting weights, I think like, at the same time. <laughs> so he's, yeah. he's like trying to stick to what is clearly like a morning routine that is very important to his ego even though he no longer has a home to do it in but this display is naturally confusing to Britta um but Shirley says like oh no I know exactly what he is doing he's living out of his car my (laughs) husband did that after he made the innocent mistake calling me Valerie yeah oh (laughs) so real quick on that I, I just to interject I'm glad you brought that up because the Halloween episode which is the last or the previous episode mm-hmm. that we that we discussed she talks about a hairdresser or no a bank teller a bank teller I think right that her I husband so. cheated on her with if that makes sense and this time we get the um the name Valerie yeah. so you start to maybe make that connection that whoever her husband cheated on her with, or maybe it was one of many women, one of them's named Valerie. It might be the same person that's like the bank teller. And it goes back to the line we always talk about, about smashing someone's head through a jukebox. It's another <laughs> one of those little Shirley lines, yes. which isn't so much the, um, like the rage aspect, but it's a detail of her life that's very specific. Yes, very I cannot specific. get enough little details about Shirley. <laughs> Wasn't the Halloween line something about, maybe I'm wrong, wasn't it something about a bank teller that had a weave or something like that? That sounds super familiar, but I can't conjure up the memory on my own. Okay, okay. 
maybe I'm wrong on that, but I feel like that was, that was, oh, and for listeners, I should say, we record these when we can. So if it sounds, so if you're listening to these in succession and you're like, but you just talked about this, might be some time in between here for Sandy and I. Um, so I'm sorry. And a lot of things happen in life, you know, the work week where I kind of forget from week to week. Also, I should say just a sidebar, you and I were so focused on the one episode at hand that honestly, sometimes like going back three episodes, I can't really remember what happened, but I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure there was something about a weave and a bank teller um, when she's trying to flood uh, uh, Slater, Professor Slater's office or whatever. But so anyways, you get the Valerie <laughs> line here and it's just another one of those like little snippets of Shirley that mm-hmm. says so much. <laughs> but so you were talking about Jeff's morning routine mm-hmm. and the vanity that comes with it. I was curious how you felt about this sort of part of the plot and this character development with Jeff because you get this interesting, I think, kind of twofold or like dovetailed character development with him, where you get this piece of him that actually is able to relax when he finally has to admit that he's got to move in with Abed. So Mm -hmm. being around Abed, which is not, those aren't two characters we've seen a lot of together, Jeff and Abed to this point. But somehow he sort of just buys into the like, I'm a college student in a dorm who can just eat cereal and watch TV. (laughs) but then it starts to affect the group dynamic in such a way that, or at least, you know, his dynamic living with, um, living with Abed, that then the group sort of decides that for the betterment of everyone, they need to feed back into that vanity and be, you know, and like maybe Britta should offer herself as like sexual fodder, you know, I mean, it's, it's, so it's interesting. I just wondered what you, what you thought about that sort of that, uh, kind of arc of like the the sort of 180 to 360 that he does in a sense. Yeah, that was really interesting. And I think the transition, like Jeff's acceptance of being kind of unhoused and um, (laughs) trying to live like Abed makes a little bit of sense because Jeff's kind of always faking anyway. So like, why not just fake a different kind of personality? But then he kind of sinks a little too far far into dorm life um yes. and there were there are some some funny little like moments where like you see like Jeff and Abed hanging out in their dorm room and like you know of course there's like movie posters on the wall and I think you know like they're eating cereal and I think Jeff's like eating out of like a Tupperware or something that's not really like <laughs> yeah, a yeah. proper bowl which is just <laughs> yep. very dorm like like I mean you lived in a dorm at some point right yes yeah Yes, definitely like had weird eating habits and you know any container could become <laughs> a food vessel as long as it was empty and relatively clean (laughs) so that kind of stuff was was fun to see but it was like I think Abed is the first one to realize like Jeff's trying to adapt but this is not his habitat this isn't right for him and it's interesting too because then towards the end Jeff says something end of the episode Jeff says something to Abed where he's like oh you would have let me live with you forever and Mm -hmm. Abed's just sort of like yeah and I actually thought in a way, I mean, maybe the way that this this episode can be interpreted is actually this is an Abed episode, but not like the typical like kind of like weird quirky Abed episode. It's actually a lot about Abed, his character and his ability to read other people's character which then comes into play in the next episode, mm-hmm. the debate episode. That's true. Maybe it was a little bit of a setup. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I think so too. Like there's this a little bit of a setup there and maybe that's because, you know, I watched them both this morning, but there's a little <laughs> bit of a setup there or at least, yeah, some kind of a foreshadowing of like Abed's ability to read the rest of the group. And there's many episodes going forward where Abed's mm-hmm. ability to read what's going on with other people relationships um you know just sort of his ability to like see that something is happening and Mm -hmm. kind of like you know be the one who gets it because he's so observant and why is he so observant because he watches all this tv but so i wonder if that's something or i guess i should say i wonder how you feel about that part of it that though abed is the one who's annoyed and sees that like jeff doesn't fit into the ecosystem if you will of like tupperware cereal eating like (laughs) dorm life and he's the one who or one of the ones that wants to get britta involved with jeff for one reason or another to quote unquote like motivate jeff back to Mm -hmm. like the winger lifestyle there was also this part of him I thought it was kind of a sweet moment when Abed's like, yeah, I would have let you live with me forever. And it's kind of this admission that like, but you're still the cool guy. You're still winger. And like, if you were my roommate, there's like some social cachet there. But also Abed maybe is a little lonely and just liked having a buddy, you know? And also just didn't, in a sense, care. He's just like, yeah, whatever, you can live with me. Right, yeah. Like Abed would have been fine with that. And he's also fine with it not happening because Abed isn't like, his happiness isn't as uh, susceptible to outside forces as, as it is with most people. Yeah. That's a, and then real quick while I'm thinking about it before I forget um, some great lines in here, for instance, when it's just Jeff by himself on the, on the couch, he's like lying there with no shirt on or something Um, or no, wait, maybe he's in boxers and a t-shirt, I think is actually, yeah, yeah. And he's lying on the couch and it's just him and the door's open and Britta walks in and she turns off the TV. He'd been watching the Jeffersons and he says, that's the Jefferson. That was the Jefferson tonky. And he just like throws that out. But then um, she says something like, she starts to make this analogy of like, yeah, but like, you're the Jeffersons, but you're living like good times. <laughs> and Jeff's like, yeah, but they had good times. <laughs> it's just like, again, such good like homage or illusion or like shout outs to old school TV. The fact mm-hmm. that like Britta would lay lay into the fact he's watching the Jeffersons to be like, you know, the people in the Jeffersons lived a better life than the people in good times because they had more money and stuff. And isn't that who you really are, Jeff? (laughs) (laughs) Suddenly he has this like really honest moment of like realizing that, you know, life isn't about the material things. It's just the way he said it. (laughs) Yeah, but they had good times. It's just so like so on the nose. Um Britta had an interesting line at towards the end of that interaction, that dialogue. And I want to hear what you thought about it. She says, maybe if you put stain remover on a turd, you don't get a diamond. <laughs> you just get a turd with less distract, sorry, with less direction in life. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? What does that mean, Sandy? Tell me. <laughs> this is okay. So we we have talked about before how like Britta's character changes throughout the course of the show mm-hmm. and she started off as this kind of like like constructed like pixie dream girl you know like object of affection for Jeff and then she gets a little bit like wackier and zanier um in her own specific way as the show progresses and like I think this is one of the ways we start to see the beginning of this where like 
Britta has um, <laughs> kind of like a wisdom about people and social situations, but very little intelligence of how to express that. <laughs> so like all wisdom, no intelligence <laughs> is how I think of, nice. of Britta. And you kind of see that in this, this weird, weird comment about turds and diamonds like I, that she's not like referencing something right like this is just this is only happening in Britta's head like there's no like saying or like like anything that would make this analogy familiar but we also at the same point like I think you, you feel like you know what she means it's, it's interesting you should say that because I hadn't thought about this in terms of her larger character arc where she kind of starts to become really just kind of vapid and ditzy at times like later in the show, you know, mm -hmm. um, in certain episodes or in certain scenes. But I hadn't thought about that. Britta has an interesting kind of linguistics and they write her in this interesting way where, yeah, whatever metaphor she's going for, mm -hmm. it's, it's mixed and there's like various different things that are probably being drawn on here, like various different mm -hmm. like axioms or like, you know, adages or whatever. But at the same time, <laughs> there is something, in, there's something intuitive about it when you hear her say that. Yeah, like you, just, you understand her, but she's not making any sense. No, but it's true. It's just like, yeah, if you take off, you know, the disgusting parts of something disgusting you don't necessarily get like a beautiful precious gem you just get kind of the same thing but the part that cracks me up though is with less direction right <laughs> right she also like, like breaks her own metaphors real real hard but they do yeah. it very well and gillian jacobs delivers it like there's something about her delivery where you're like no i know exactly what you're trying to say britta <laughs> <laughs> That's the other thing. It ends up being so kind of cutting and specific to Jeff, yeah. where it's just like, here's yeah. this random mixed metaphor that doesn't make any sense. But ultimately, it's just the fact that you specifically, Jeff Winger, have just gotten lazy, but you're still a turd. You're still a piece of shit. Like, <laughs> you're still this materialistic person. As evidenced by when she throws him the uh, handcrafted Italian um, faucets that apparently she stole out of this condo that he's losing and, yes. he and he recognizes them because he put a notch in there as he says <laughs> for the perfect temperature for quote combination skin yeah <laughs> so good um i also noticed too like so in this scene as you said jeff's like lounging on the tv and t-shirt and boxers he's also got like a piece of pizza just sitting on the couch um like without a plate or anything yeah. So it's very gross. And then when Britta shows him these faucets he used to love so much, his body language completely changes from like slob to like, he's kind of like tilting himself up and like crosses his legs. And he's got this look kind of like boudoir pose going on because the material possessions have like reawakened his true self. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I didn't even notice that. Good pull. That's awesome. The, uh, the other thing in that scene is he does say something uh, suggestive to Britta. Yeah. Because now that he's reawakened and, and he's like, well, I mean, I think the way I interpreted it is partly he's like, well, if you want me to get back to that lifestyle, that obviously means that you're attracted to me. And I think mm -hmm. he basically says that not in so many words, <laughs> but she had another funny line where she looked at him and she goes, I beg your unbelievable pardon. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I'm perfect. so going to steal that. <laughs> I am so going to steal. I beg your unbelievable pardon. That's amazing. Um, 
since we're kind of talking about this Brita part, I wanted to shift to like the next plot point. But uh, real quick, was there anything else you wanted to say about the Jeff homelessness kind of double-sided character growth where you see him kind of give up the materiality and just be comfortable like being one of the guys in the dorm and then like complete another complete 180 you know um to be like no that is who I am I'm that guy well I think he did kind of grow as a character though because he shouldn't live in a dorm you know that that's not really right for him as a person so it's not like he went back to his old life like he adapted in a real way like a realistic way I mean I'm assuming that like he you know sells the condo and gets a little bit of money from that and gets an apartment that like actually fits his needs and his means and that he kind of comes to terms with the fact that his life isn't going to be exactly the same but he can still be largely the same person yeah, it's interesting because um, he does say something at the very end when they're at the outdoor concert or whatever, which we'll get to, um, where he says, oh, I'm living in a hotel now. It's when Abed, you know, like asked him, like, oh, you moved out. He's like, yeah, I'm living in a, a like, I'm living in a hotel or whatever. And then um, I'm living in a motel and I'm looking for apartments. Mm-hmm. And you're right. In a way, it's like, it's the, maybe the character growth there for Jeff is the recognition that I'm not this smarmy fake lawyer that I used to be. But so maybe that's the character growth is that he realizes mm-hmm. that he does have to let go of that lifestyle. And as many characters, particularly Pierce have been and Troy have been trying to tell him up to this point of the show, like you just have to accept that you're at Greendale and be cool with it. Mm-hmm. And so maybe part of that for him is like, yeah, I have to accept that I'm at Greendale and I, and I need to be cool with that. But that doesn't mean I need to live in the dorm, but it also means right. that I have to grow from that old lifestyle of Jeff the lawyer. And so yeah. maybe that's where that comes. I think so. Yeah, I think um, as you were saying, like his his legal career was real in a sense because he did it, but also fake in a sense that he wasn't allowed to do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah. so maybe he's figuring out that like, okay, yeah, you can't just pretend that you're still this guy. And so we have to get rid of kind of the fake aspects of that previous life but it wasn't all fake there were like real you know he was still a person and so maybe he's figuring out like what about him was real the whole time and what was fake and getting rid of some of the fake stuff no I think you're right and I also think that's sort of what the faucets kind of represent in a way is it's like it's okay to hang on to some of these old things but like Mm -hmm. you kind of have to grow up and maybe that means like a toned down apartment and you know whatever just like a different lifestyle and one last thing for dialogue, when they're sitting there, him and Abed, excuse me, are sitting there watching TV. Um, and Abed admits that he was raised by TV because his dad didn't like to watch mm-hmm. TV with him. And he's really happy Jeff's there to watch TV with him because he never had someone to watch TV with. So when he says, um, when Abed says, I was raised by TV, Jeff says, TV's the best dad there is. TV never came home drunk. TV never forgot me at the zoo. TV never abused and insulted me unless you count cop rock. <laughs> it's a great line. Great line. Um, okay, so moving on then, the second thing we were going to talk about, so we were talking about Britta and kind of how she's there to help like rehabilitate the materialism of Winger and to get like that group dynamic back on board. Mm-hmm. We see Vaughn come back. Vaughn comes back <laughs> early in the episode. Um, British jilted ex-boyfriend slash poet slash hacky sack player slash exactly. musician. Yeah. Neo hippie quad open quad area resident. You know? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So 
Vaughn comes back and he's clearly, yes, as you said, jilted by the breakup. And Pierce offers to like talk to Vaughn for Britta to smooth things over, whatever his intention is. He off camera, we don't see this happen, but he goes to talk to Vaughn and somehow that after after Britta says specifically, do yes. not do that. And then Pierce is like, Well, that means I should do it. Yeah. Which is like, again like a nod to Pierce's gross, like old masculine creepy way of like no means yes <laughs> i was just very very actually because he says something like that's woman talk for like yep. yes go do it. and it was an odd keep in mind when this came out in 2009 and this is not an excuse but this was a few years before the me too movement yeah and it was actually something i wanted to mention not i'm not saying that excuses it but i do wonder if they would have written it differently with that in mind or if they would if that was the point partly is like, yeah, Pierce is just one of those old white dudes that's never going to get it. <laughs> like he's Yeah, just I this see dude. it that way that like okay. the, the Pierce is uh, representing kind of these like awful <laughs> aspects of masculinity from his generation that, you know, Pierce is not a role model. <laughs> True. So, okay. So that's interesting. He's so kind of a villain. Yeah, yeah. So then, okay, because there was a part of me that's like, God, I can't believe they wrote that line in, you know, but then I'm like, well, but maybe that is what they wanted is to be yeah. like, no, look, Pierce is one of these like, white men of a certain age with this sort of chauvinistic, patriarchal mm -hmm. kind of, you know, paternalistic view of the world that you're just not going to change. And that's how they think. And we're just kind of calling that out or whatever. Mm -hmm. But so anyways, yes, Britta tries to stop him or, you know, tells him, no, you're not going to go talk to Vaughn for me. He takes it as a green light to go talk to Vaughn, he goes to talk to Vaughn. And the best result of this is that he becomes the keyboardist for Vaughn's <laughs> band, which then means that at a little like show they're doing in the, uh, what do you call it? In the cafeteria, mm -hmm. they release or like give the they, first they, public- They debut. They debut, thank you. They debut publicly the getting rid of Britta song which is just <laughs> like literally names her and is clearly this like jilted lover I'm Vaughn this specific person broke up with me and this is a song about what a terrible person she is mm -hmm. which then obviously then now we double down on the like someone's got to stop Vaughn from being like this <laughs> um which then leads to what I thought was maybe the funniest part of the entire show is the confrontation when she, Britta, walks into their band practice. Yes. And just to make a really quick nod to the tight writing, like in the previous scene, she'd been talking to uh, Jeff and Abed in the dorm room. Mm -hmm. And um, they bring up something about Pierce and Vaughn. And she's like, excuse me, I have a future murder victim to visit. <laughs> and then she goes off to find and confront Vaughn. <laughs> Nice. I forgot, yeah, I forgot about that line. Yeah. So, okay. So she leaves. Oh, it's because Pavel comes in and is like, yeah. oh, Britta and starts singing the song. Getting and she's rid like, of Britta. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, that's how people know me. But so and when that's she, why we meet Pavel. I think that's the first appearance of Pavel. I think you're right. It's definitely name wise. I was trying to think actually when I saw it. Um, or when I watched it this morning, had he been in the background anywhere? And oh, that may maybe. or may not be the be the case, but it's definitely like our first introduction proper to Pavel. Mm -hmm. Another one of the many like bit characters in yeah. this show that kind of comes and goes or whatever, and is very attached to like dorm room episodes yeah. or whatever. So she walks into the band practice, interrupts, Vaughn's being a dick to her. And he says something about, you know, his song the british yeah. song being his song pierce calls him over 
which this is one of my favorite parts, like really funny kind of slapsticky stuff. Pierce mm-hmm. can't get out from behind the keyboard just, For some reason, there's, he's just surrounded by keyboards. <laughs> and I love any situation where we get physical comedy out of Pierce because Chevy Chase does it in a way that nobody else can talk. Well, and the, and to go back through early parts of his career, like he he's a master at that. You know what I mean? Like falling the down the stairs is, coming yeah, into- Yeah, he's the master yeah. of the fumble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, all of that, falling down the stairs coming into like Saturday Night Live. I mean, just, yeah, he's so good at that. <laughs> so much Clark Griswold stuff. So it's nice to see him still kind of have that. He's mm-hmm. very good physically. Um, but so he's behind that keyboard setup can't get out calls Vaughn over and then Vaughn does this thing where he's walking with his guitar and he's like whipping the core like the cable around but he's doing oh, it's it so funny like it's a weapon it's just yeah. so funny so the interesting thing is the conversation ends up being Britta can't hear it but the conversation is about the song right and Pierce, Pierce is offended is- that Vaughn said this is my song so that's why yeah. I get to choose the lyrics and Pierce says like oh no no this is our song exactly no this like dude this is our song and then he says uh pierce says to vaughn are you trying to garfunkel me at which point vaughn says maybe assuming to garfunkel someone is to keep putting up with them even though they're a fat lazy cat who hogs the spotlight and eats all the lasagna <laughs> so he gets it confused with gar Oh, so good. And they don't explain it. They don't elaborate. (laughs) They never actually say Garfield. No, no, no. No, that's the thing. But it's funny because, (laughs) I mean, you could see how Paul Simon might have been a hard guy to get along with for old Art Garfunkel, (laughs) but I think that's a two-way street from what I understand. But but then Pierce has a great line when he's, when he basically, he says that um Vaughn's jealous of him and Vaughn's like why would I be jealous of you old man basically and he says maybe because when I put on these skinny jeans my ass looks like a baby pumpkin <laughs> which I I don't know if that's something you want but uh yeah anyway so but so, so, so sort of the, no wasted lines in this episode <laughs> no wasted lines great point but so the, sort of the comedy and the dialogue aside um in terms of the character stuff you start to see a connection for better or for worse between pierce and britta and obviously mm-hmm. you get vaughn coming back into this um but what was your sort of kind of general take about how this sort of comes to be and, and ultimately gets resolved in this episode i mean insofar as like was there anything you feel like you learn about britta or um pierce that we haven't necessarily learned up to this point or do you think it just kind of solidifies their character what what would you think about this part of the plot i mean i i feel like it demonstrates about britta that she really does want to assume the best of people like pierce is always doing the thing that is like least in her interest but she always kind of like wants to believe that he's helping her like when he's arguing with vaughn you know she thinks that he's defending her and that happens a couple times in this this dynamic so i think it tells you that about britta but i think it more so just shows that like this is a, a group that really actively wants to stick together Mm. Mm. and that they they are interested in finding ways to like get over the speed bumps in their relationships because there's Mm. something that's more important to them that's that's the feeling i get from it no that's interesting i hadn't thought about that and that's a great insight as always the that maybe what this show 
I mean, this particular episode, maybe what it says and that we've seen from the show up to this point is that they're all so committed to the group that they're willing to put up with each other's flaws and foibles a little Mm -hmm. bit, but also this like, sure, Abed would have let Jeff stay with him forever. Nobody Mm -hmm. really would have judged Jeff if he had to live in his car. Certainly nobody judges Shirley when her little like reveals (laughs) come about. And again, there's a lot of connection between this episode and the next one, because there's some foreshadowing here between the Mm -hmm. Britta Pierce relationship. But it goes back to something you were saying now, and I hadn't thought about this, that Britta is very much willing to deal with people's flaws, other characters' flaws, for like the betterment of the group. And maybe in a sense, she's like the quintessential character who's willing to kind of sacrifice some personal comfort for the group. Mm-hmm. Um, because in this episode, and in, in, in some of this dialogue we're talking about, or this part of the episode, this plot point, she really does, in a sense, let Pierce kind of get the satisfaction and even kind of gives him the win when she walks over and is like, Pierce, like you, like you stood up for me or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's clear he's like, what? Huh? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but it's like, in a way. Well, she wants to believe that he stood up for her. Exactly. She wants yeah. to believe that. And she wants to believe that the same way she wants to believe that there's a part of Jeff that really is interested in the group as a friend group and a study mm-hmm. group and is no longer really interested in her sexually or whatever. Mm-hmm. Which is why that to go back to the line when she's like, I beg your unbelievable pardon. Like <laughs> sort of like, wait, I thought we were over that whole thing right. about how you you think I think you're hot or whatever, yeah. but just don't know how to admit it. Another great part about that band uh, practice scene was that when Vaughn leaves the room, when he's just like, my band, my song, (laughs) his rage exit, where he like kicks a tambourine and then throws it and then like knocks some like out of some percussion instrument, like off the top of like a piano or something. He has a tantrum. Yeah, it's amazing. So before we move on to kind of the third plot point, anything else you wanted to say about that sort of part of the story or that (laughs) plot point? Just really quickly, my other favorite part of the band room scene is the um, poster in the background of a woman playing a pan flute, and it's just like the dumbest poster. (laughs) I'm very into it. There was actually, there was another poster in the background in one of the other scenes, but I don't know, like you couldn't see the whole thing, so I don't know what the whole message was, but the top of the poster just had the word transfer all the way across the top. Like, are you just actively telling people to get out of Greendale? it's funny i noticed both i noticed the pan flute one but i was so like busy writing down the lines that i I was just like that's a weird poster and i didn't really take it in but i saw the transfer one and it really just comes in in the background when they're outside on campus and it's like posted to a wall outside somewhere and it just kind of comes in and out of the background real quick and i was like ah but i could i couldn't get back to it so i'm glad you noticed that there was definitely some good visual Mm -hmm. like some good art some good classic like community poster art in this episode so the third i guess plot point we want to talk about is annie's lingering on crush Mm -hmm. lingering crush on troy that she apparently has had since high school and we've had some allusions to this like we kind of know she's had a crush on troy since high school or at least we know that she did have a crush on him in high school and sort of saw him as like part of the high school you know hierarchy dynamic that yeah he was unattainable to her unattainable you know star quarterback um you know she but she genuinely liked him for who he was not just because he was the star quarterback but he never noticed her you know Mm -hmm. like you've gotten some of that stuff alluded to in particularly very john hughes (laughs) yes very john hughes in um 
Annie's dialogue in particular in previous yeah. episodes of the show, but here it comes out more explicitly and particularly her, you know, lingering crush on him. And so when they're leaving class together, basically he's like, hey, if there's two friends and a, you know, a class together and one wants to ask one out and she's like, oh my God, Troy's going to ask me out. But as it turns mm -hmm. out, he's asking for advice on how to ask out another woman. So she sort of signs herself up for being his coach or whatever yeah and and you can tell that she just wants to spend more time with him so she's thinking that like overall this would be a good trade-off and doesn't realize that no it's just going to hurt her much more but in this scene where annie's making this terrible decision shirley is in the background just going like mm, no don't do that <laughs> and like i love that about shirley in this episode like there are so many scenes where somebody else is doing something like outrageous or stupid and she is in the background reacting like shirley in this episode is me as an audience member <laughs> yeah. like whatever she is doing is what i'm feeling about the other characters that are on screen at the moment it's funny there is like a weird greek tragedy like with the chorus element to this with shirley <laughs> where she is the person on you know on the stage that's like i'll speak for you guys yeah. i'll be like oh, don't do that you know uh, there's <laughs> something interesting about that the other thing she has a great line where after troy walks away from like the original or initial conversation with Annie, Annie says something about like, I want to have your babies. I can't remember exactly what she says. <laughs> yeah, but, she says something about wanting to have Troy's babies. <laughs> yeah, and then and or uh, Shirley walks by and is like, damn, I should pick the wrong couple to like, to to like you know like basically eavesdrop on leaving leaving class today because she says something yeah. about how like Jeff and Britta like whatever they were talking about was boring. There was like nothing going on there. So it's yeah, another Shirley's the audience. <laughs> exactly, but it's also another moment of Shirley's character where she loves to eavesdrop and get the gossip oh, with everybody yeah. else because we've seen that already sure. before like she loves it and it's one of the ways she kind of originally connected with Jeff and making fun of Vaughn or whatever yeah so with this part of it it progresses to Annie helping Troy like set up a nice little picnic date at this like whatever it is under the star night under the stars night or under whatever the stars, which is just night right like yeah. <laughs> what, what else are you advertising night with stars that's so true. Night under the this stars. This is the best Greendale could do. And it's their outdoor Outdoors, concert. it'll be dark. It's it's their outdoor concert, like on campus, featuring yeah. campus bands, and it's yeah. called Night Under the Stars. But she <laughs> offers Troy her heirloom blanket. Yes. Uh, which her grandmother was proposed to on, or what her her grandfather first courted her grandmother, or something like that, as she puts it. Yeah. So it sounds like before they were married her grandma made this quilt for her grandpa and it was that was part of what sealed the deal <laughs> her quilting ability okay okay, okay. <laughs> I, I missed that part of it okay so but the, so there's this it's this heirloom and she offers it to troy and gives him the whole advice of like you do this you do that you each take a bite of your food she laughs yeah, they do a dry run a dress rehearsal of the exactly <laughs> and it's clearly her living vicariously through that future moment wanting you know sort of yeah. like projecting herself house. yeah yeah and um but then she fakes a uh her appendix bursting <laughs> so that troy will take her to the whatever the clinic on campus which then leads to i would say well first of all it was a cameo that i had forgotten was in the show mm -hmm. like all across the board but maybe the great cameo appearance in all of community, Patton Oswalt as the doctor who assumes that 
Annie's pregnant and that Troy and or has an as some sort of STI like that that they're in there for that reason. I mean, yeah, it's a college health clinic. So the only thing that could possibly happen here are STIs. <laughs> Particularly if um, like a male or and pregnant. a female walk in together, yeah. it, you just assume that it's pregnancy or an STI, <laughs> like something's yeah. happening here. So as and he, Annie, well, and Annie has faked this because she tried to get to a point where she confesses her feelings for Troy, but she can't point. get over that hill. And then just to monopolize his attention so he doesn't leave for his actual date, she panics and claims appendicitis, you know, as you do. As one does, yeah. as one does when you can't get up the, the like <laughs> the strength to tell someone how you really feel about them. I shouldn't say that, that sounded dismissive. Like, oh, she couldn't get up the strength. I mean, I'm sure I've been in many situations when I didn't have the strength to tell someone how I felt about them, but I just mean, you know. Well, and this is much easier to make fun of at 40, although it felt very, very real at 19. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Patton Oswalt is like rolling on a rolling chair from his desk over to the gurney and says, I think I've been to this dance before. <laughs> and then later says something like, I didn't want another Vanessa Parsons. After he finds out that she thinks it's appendicitis and that they aren't partners. And he says, Troy, like, you're okay to leave. I have to quarantine her just in mm -hmm. case, but you're okay to go to the, yeah, you're okay to go to like the East Mall or whatever it is like on campus. <laughs> you're okay to go over there to a night under the stars. But he says, I didn't want another Vanessa Parsons, the typhoid Mary of herpes. <laughs> and then when she, Annie, looks at Patton Oswalt's character with like, just shock and disdain he says i'm kind of the hawkeye around here and then immediately <laughs> pivots to are you seeing anybody yep just sorry but that is just pure hilarity to me That's um so funny but so then uh she gets released she goes to interrupt troy's date demands the bank the blanket back kind of pulls it out from under them she's in like you know a like a hospital gown like yeah. apparently with no pants on surely she so goes up to shirley and is like i know that doesn't seem like much but that was huge for me um mm -hmm. at which point shirley says yeah let's get some let's get, let's get you some pants or something yeah but in a way i think that this is actually telling because i think that is a big moment for annie i think it's it like her growth was to just say, oh, well, I'm going to make a line. I'm going to draw a line and make a boundary. I'm going to make a statement. Might not be the one I want to make, but it's going to be what I'm comfortable with. Yeah. Well, and she's not comfortable at all is the thing. But like, it, that's kind of the growth for her is that the comfortable thing would be to do nothing. Mm, now, she's mm -hmm. not going to do what she really wants, but she is going to do something. And she's going to take that blanket back. And Allison Brie is so committed, she's like willing to bear her ass for the comedic value of being in the hospital gown. Yeah, you gotta give her credit because she's like, she is. She nails this scene. <laughs> they're all great at this, but Allison Brie is often like the gamer. You know what I mean? Like, she's the one that will get like covered with like blood and slime. You know, like Allison <laughs> or like. She's up for anything. <laughs> yeah, or like having Jeff like kneeling in front of her, like his ass in her face when they're doing that. Him and uh, Pierce are doing that like presentation in Spanish class. Oh, like yeah. <laughs> she like she's such a gamer in that way what i mean is like she's up for the competition like she's so yeah. committed sometimes to the awkward physicality of her scenes yeah. you know yeah. but so this is more like a you know real life kind of thing but I, I was just curious what your take is because let's just say i wasn't unfamiliar with annie's plot 
Sure. Yeah. I was just like, mm, yeah, I remember being like, sure, I'll be like your nice guy friend that you mm-hmm. spend all your time with. And you tell me about some awful date or like whatever you've been on or tell me about what a jerk your boyfriend is. And I'll be like the mm-hmm. nice guy who's there because maybe, you know, or like, I don't know, you'll recognize that I'm the one who cares or whatever. I was just curious, like, and not to like genderize it, but like what you felt about like those dynamics of her being like woman with the crush who contrives ways to spend time with this guy she has a crush on just to be able to spend time with him even though she's literally helping him (laughs) court somebody else as it were yeah i mean i think that what you start to see happening here when she kind of like takes that blanket back is that not that she's gonna like cut herself off from troy or decide to stop having a crush on him even if she you know would be capable of doing that but that she can do those things and also like build a genuine friendship with him Hmm. um, and to have a legitimate friendship. Like, I think that that is um, what's starting to happen here is they're just, they're moving from object of affection and acquaintance to people who have a, like a legitimate two-way friendship. And maybe, you know, the, the affection is still there as an undercurrent that Troy's oblivious to, but that doesn't negate the, the friendship from, from blooming. Nice. I guess when I think back to that time of my life, like in my 20s or whatever, I guess that's what I wasn't good at. And I don't think this is, I think many people aren't good at that. I think it's really hard for you to be genuinely friends with someone that you are attracted to, (laughs) particularly at a certain time in your life. And then like when you no longer sort of interact with that person, you, you do kind of realize like, oh, but I never really cared about that person. I just cared about the potential or the possibility of us dating. And so I wasn't really that person's friend, you know? But I don't feel like that's the case here. No, that's a great point. Now that's, was that's what I was saying is like I love that like that I think you're right there's that genuine growth between them and I think in a way now that I now that I hear you articulate that that's what was hard for me when I watched this in a way it was like so cringy to me because I realized I guess I just wasn't a big enough person to be like that you know <laughs> like I, I just look back on I'm like no I think I always had ulterior motivations or whatever um in in some of these situations I was in whereas Annie truly does and again it's that line of like it might not seem like much but that was big for me like this Mm -hmm. was a big moment for me I can actually just see him as a friend and like and that friendship's mutual because he recognize he at least recognizes me now as someone that yeah is um is a friend yeah and I think that it also is probably a little more possible here, you know, one, because it's fiction, but also two, because like, this is part of a group that's kind of has like a familial quality to it. If it was just the two of them with independent friendship and not the group fabric around it, it probably wouldn't work. Yeah, no, that's a good point too. But uh, yeah, it's interesting because, and that's why I wanted to talk about this because we watch these episodes by ourselves, and it kind of makes, you know, maybe you think about parts of your life or you have an interpretation of it or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad to hear you talk about this. Cause yeah, that's all I could think the whole time was like, Oh, how many times was young Kroll in that situation? <laughs> and what a terrible person I am. Cause I never would have, you know what I mean? Like eventually I probably just lost friends or removed myself from friend groups strictly. Cause I was like, well, that person's never going to like me in the way I want them to like me. So I might as well just not hang out with these people at all, you know? And <laughs> as I say, I don't think I'm the only person who maybe had that kind of immaturity about me, but yeah, that's though. I think you're absolutely right. And, and sorry if it, I didn't want to come across as I was discrediting your point. I actually think Mm -hmm. that's a great point is that 
and maybe because it's fiction, as you say, the possibility the possibility is here for them to have that growth as genuine friends mm-hmm. um, with maybe they're still being like a little crush or whatever in the background, but it's not going to affect the larger group dynamic and it's not going to affect their interpersonal like communication or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know, I guess in my experience, it doesn't usually work out that well. So yeah, I was just kind of curious what, I mean, not that you have to share your own personal experience, but if you thought that that was a good reflection of how these things often work out. Yeah, and I think that there is something different about this kind of like a chosen family kind of relationship they have that's Mm. different from just being friends. Because, you know, with family members, there are like aspects of your family members that you love and there are aspects that like, you know, you, you clash with or that you don't approve of, but that those things can run in tandem. And it doesn't threaten the relationship. It's an interesting point. And um, that can be another podcast for some <laughs> other time. Family. We'll just, <laughs> so, at some point, you and I will co-host a podcast where we just talk about family, you know, <laughs> um, and what, and not just ours, but just the general concept of a family. Um, <laughs> One of the Thanksgiving episodes. <laughs> yeah. And actually, good poll, because the their, their Thanksgiving episodes often are about family. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. But no, I think I like what you said there because look, there's just a reality to the fact that you don't choose your family. And so in some ways, Mm -hmm. because you grow up with these people, there's aspects about them you may not love. There's things about your family that annoys you and that's a two-way street. There's things about you that annoys Mm -hmm. them, whatever. But you can overlook it or just get used to it and deal with it in a certain way where it doesn't affect the family relationship. Not for for everybody. I mean, I definitely know some people Mm -hmm. who have some very strained family relationships that where they really are just different people with different worldviews and kind of different personalities. Mm -hmm. But it's true that one broad distinction we can maybe make about our social lives and like the communities that we choose to create, you have your family, which is given to you, but with your friends, you choose them. And a lot of it is choosing whether or not you can deal with a certain amount of their quirks or their idiosyncrasies or their differences of opinion. And for many people, friendships like die on that hill, you know, (laughs) like you're just like, sorry, I just see the world differently. I don't think I really can be this person's friend. So either you never pursue that communication to really becoming friends or, you know, you get to a point in your life where you're like, oh, that person's very different now and I'm not Mm -hmm. comfortable being their friend anymore. Um, Does that make sense? Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that this is not just a group of friends. This is a group of chosen family. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that point because it also feeds into the whole thing that we've often like discussed is like community. I mean, it's the perfect <laughs> title for that show. You know what that I mean? Show it just, really is about community. It is. It really is. It really is about community. And I like this piece that you have me thinking about now where there's sort of this, they're a chosen family. Did you ever see the sitcom Spaced? No, I don't, uh, wait. With, oh, is that Nick, a British sitcom? Yeah, yeah, with Nick Frost and Simon yes. Pegg. So at the end of the series, I think it's like, the 12th episode they maybe did two series of six shows or whatever and at the end of it there's a line where they're they're trying to figure out who's gonna or i think maybe the house they're all living in was going to be sold or like some of them are going to move out or something they're i can't figuring e- out living arrangements yeah they're figuring out yeah. living arrangements apologies to space fans it's been years i can't exactly remember <laughs> though i did see that series a couple times and loved it but so anyways they're talking about um i think basically simon Pegg and the woman that he's like 
you know, in a relationship with in the show, but he's really not like that all comes to light to the landlord. And so it's like, all right, we got to figure out who's living, who's going, whatever. And he says something about, um, he's like something like, you know, sociologists say that like the postmodern ideal of a family will be like people that aren't related, but that like live in a living or that like occupy a single living space and sort of choose <laughs> to be a family. And that line always stuck with me because I really do think that's true. And as evidenced by you and I recording these on Zoom during a pandemic or late stages of a pandemic, mm -hmm. it really does sort of speak to that, that with our ability to virtually connect now and be online and create relationships and dialogue and actual like hangouts in that mm -hmm. way, I do think there is something, of, I don't know, I think that's always sort of meant something to me because even going back to like a child like my childhood some of the dudes that I was like in a really close-knit group with in high school I call them family and sometimes I'll say to people mm -hmm. like oh I'm going to visit family or something this week and like mm -hmm. it might not necessarily be my family like I just it's like that's family to me and I think there's mm -hmm. something true about that there's the community you choose and it becomes a family because of the way you choose to commit to them and to be right. like this is our group and, and that gonna... doesn't mean it's always easy. And it, it doesn't mean like you can't like sometimes confront each other. I mean, I think that relationship kind of gives you the freedom to say things like, Pierce, let's discuss this creepiness <laughs> that you couldn't do with just a friend. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. Well, thanks for discussing that, Sandy. Before we get to sort of wrapping this up, I just want to say I hope I hope nobody fell asleep there but um no that's really interesting i hadn't and as you know we often say about this show i just don't think about these things before we come into it and thanks for kind of helping me see that and as always your insights were valuable here and now i've got this sort of like warm feeling about me of like yeah family is like kind of what you make of it you know and that's what's great about this show they're really committed to being a family of friends if that makes sense and, and I genuinely think that neither of us would come up with any of these insights if we just put the time in alone to like sit and write papers about each episode of Community. Like I think this exists in Community. Like it has to be an active living conversation to happen. No, you're absolutely right. And in communication, like it has to be something you're discussing live mm -hmm. time to have these insights yeah. and these kind of revelations. Because you're right, if I tried to sit down and write a academic paper about this episode, none of this would have... Mm -hmm. I want to, yeah. Real quick, was there any sort of, uh, before we get to the coda, and did you have like a favorite moment of the show? I'll just add that mine oh, was the yeah. Patton Oswalt, you know, like that, that was, <laughs> I just thought that was brilliant. One of the so best good. moments of the entire, of the entire series, I honestly would say watching it, I completely forgot about it. So that was my favorite part of the show, Patton Oswalt. He's delightful. The Hawkeye. <laughs> the Hawkeye. Classic. But so my favorite was actually a line that we haven't mentioned yet which happens in the very beginning when they're confronting Jeff to get him to admit that he's lost his home. And they're trying to be really nice about it and that Jeff completely rejects um, their overtures of kindness and says the next person to offer me pity will be mentioned by name in my suicide note. <laughs> <laughs> and I can connect with that so much. Like I can really see like, yeah, I theoretically could see doing that to spite someone. <laughs> One of those like really dark lines the show gets away with because yeah. I think for the most part it's like so kind of silly and bright and upbeat. But you're right. It's one of those like sinister dark community lines. I forgot about yeah. that line. Yeah, yeah. Oh, rough. So okay, on to the coda. 
one of the most original and funny codas of the show so far. And again, maybe all told, but it's Pierce on a synthesizer dropping a, a track for what you assume is a like battle rap diss track that he has written about Vaughn since he's been kicked out of the group. And at the night under the stars, Vaughn changed his song from being about Britta to being about Pierce, mm-hmm. to being about Pierce. And Pierce there was a, a, a guy who comes out and does sort of like reggae lyrics over the over Pierce's bands, or sorry, uh, Vaughn's bands, uh, you know, music or whatever. So basically Pierce ups the ante and is like, I'm going to go find myself like a campus MC to drop this diss track all of which includes like middle school bodily function humor. A lot of poop humor. A lot of poop and pee humor. Um, but that that rap is so funny, and we're not going to like so repeat good. it here because there's no like there's no topping that scene as it is. Like just go back and rewatch that like a three or four times. Yeah, so good, so good. The one line that I will reference is is the guy says something like, "Um, his breath smells so bad that his butt is mad at his mouth or something like that." Right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so good it's so silly and unnecessary but you're right like can't repeat it here um because wouldn't be worth it but just one of the great codas and i also thought it was interesting that for the first time in a while there wasn't like a character like um you know group study group coda or like an Mm -hmm. abed and troy coda it was kind of interesting that it was like just a completely different kind of coda with pierce who often isn't in the coda and then someone who's really i think that's this person's only like cameo in the series it's just like a random one-off for this guy dropping these (laughs) these lyrics and it's not like he becomes a character that you recognize any other time later in the show i don't think so i think he's just in this episode wow that's amazing all right well i guess that's our uh our hot takes 11 (laughs) year 12 years later our hot (laughs) takes on a season one episode eight of community home economics uh we'll be back soon with season one episode nine which i believe is titled debate 109 um yeah sandy thanks as always for the conversation and the insights and if i can add one ps i Absolutely. think that at the very end of the show right before the coda when the band is performing the song about pierce um pierce's reaction as an audience member is to like look to the girls next to him and say like hey i'm pierce that song's about me and like to start clapping along and uh I just love that. I think that that is one way that maybe, you know, in that one tiny way, Pierce can be a role model. (laughs) It is interesting that it's a very Pierce thing to sort of like own the humility, partly because of his age. And like, though he's not necessarily a great person, there is a wisdom we've talked about that comes Mm -hmm. with Pierce's age. And so he kind of owns that, like the way he'll tell Jeff, like, look, I own the fact that I'm like, you know, the mogul of these wet... (laughs) (laughs) wet wipes or whatever these moist hand towelettes um but i'm here at community so you're right i forgot about that line but it's like him owning the humility of being that character coupled with the fact that he just loves anything that makes him the center of attention so it's also just like i'm cool with it like songs about me (laughs) no that's nice i love that Nice. I'm glad you added that because I forgot about that bit. And also that feeds in well to the next episode, which will be a lot about, again, um, a relation or the friendship or kind of interpersonal dynamics between Britta and Pierce. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. Well, we'll return with that episode soon enough. But thanks for listening, everybody. 
Our theme music is Happy Dance by Cedric Galkey. Please subscribe to Streets Behind wherever you get your podcasts.